being citizens of your kingdom first and foremost. So, Lord, as we continue on in Revelation, I pray that, as always, you would open our hearts and our minds, and that, Lord, we would glean a new understanding of this complicated text, but more and more that we would uh, just gain a deeper understanding of your love and care and concern for us and our souls. We commit this time to you, Lord, and we thank you for your presence here, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Have you guys been thinking about freedom and independence and liberty this, this weekend? I, one of the ways I like to do that is watching movies, of course. Uh, I was watching Independence Day. They had that, you know, freedom of the whole earth. And, and then I was watching, um, or I was reflecting on the message, uh, and we are going to deal with some really significant themes in Revelation this morning. We're at a, a passage that's looking at a lot of things like the rapture, like the millennial reign of Christ in Armageddon. Yeah, uh, going to be interesting. But I was thinking, my, my thoughts went to World War II, and I was thinking about um, the reason why uh, some historians would argue why we ultimately won the war. That was in part because nations such as ours and nations such as England said, you know what, we're not going to sit this one out. They, they saw evil being perpetrated. And they said, even though we could probably be like, okay, well, that's bad for them, but we don't want to like get entangled in this stuff. They saw evil and they stepped in. And I was reflecting on uh, Winston Churchill's perhaps most famous words from a speech. It's called Never Give Up. But actually, uh, I was told when I first heard it, I was told he just sat, stood up at a graduation and said, never, never, never give up and sat down. He actually didn't do that. He, he did give a speech. And I find some of his words uh, just around the never give up really compelling. It says, he said, never give in, never, 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 and nothing, great and small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. I wondered if he shared that with Roosevelt when he was trying to say, hey, we're not going to give in to the evil that's there, but would you give in to honor and good sense and engage? He says, never yield to forces, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Those words, such courage, such valor in the midst, inviting us to sacrifice in the face of evil for the good. I believe as Christians, as we get closer to the end times, we are going to be called to greater courage and valor. 
That we're going to, we today, we are invited in each moment, each day, to do the right thing in a way that honors God, regardless of the sacrifice, to, to love well, to serve well, to lead well, to sacrifice well. But as we get closer, more and more, we're going to need to be more courageous to live with more valor as Christians. We've been walking through the book of Revelation, and boy, we have really tackled some tough stuff in terms of the, the great prostitute and last week and the uh, trinity of evil, of the, the beast from the abyss and the sea and the earth, and we've seen all this. We've been focused in, uh, some of you that weren't here for our, our walkthrough, really since chapter 8 in Revelation, we've seen what has been called Daniel's 70th seven, or seven years of, um, uh, I'm losing the word, not distribution, uh, seven years of tribulation, yes. Difficulty, strain, and struggle. And, and we've been seeing, and there's a certain sense from chapter 8, when it starts with the half hour of silence, and the trumpets, the first trumpet starts to play, that really, what I believe, the book of Revelation from 8 to where we are now, if you want to turn to Revelation 19, is this picture of the seven years of tribulation and its pictures. The risen Christ is giving to, to John and to you and I these stacked pictures that are happening again and again through the seven years of tribulation and inviting us to understand what's happening in the seven-year tribulation. We have a chart that we have used and looked at for this uh, seven years. Kate, can we go to that chart where we see and read from Daniel as a correlating book that the Antichrist, he begins as a man of peace and deceives the world and he's saying, hey, can't we get along? And he creates a, a covenant of peace. There's great deception and that begins the seven years of tribulation. And then we've been reading chapter after chapter I believe the great prostitute is part of the first part of tribulation, where it's a godless society, where we're saying, hey, the only ones that the Antichrist has difficulty with is Christians, who say, no, 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 we don't get to live just how we want, that God created us for purpose. So we're facing persecution in the first part. You have two witnesses in Jerusalem that are proclaiming the goodness of God, but they're persecuted, ultimately killed, but then things turn halfway through and the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel talks about, that, that uh, Paul talks about, that Jesus talks about, happens halfway through. And then what Jesus calls the great tribulation or Revelation 13 is happening. And all the while, then the Antichrist says, no longer am I just saying be tolerant of everything. Now it's time to worship me. It's time to take my mark and to live. If you want to live econ economically prosperous, you take my mark. If you don't want to be persecuted for your faith and religion, you take my mark and you worship me. It turns on that. And in fact... There are some harsh words that are shared 
in the midst of all this tribulation. Revelation 13, 7, it gives a picture of this tribulation and the war that's about to take place, the Armageddon, and it says, it was given, it, uh, this is Revelation 13, 7, it being the Antichrist or the beast, the Antichrist was given the power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. I wish I wasn't reading from Scripture, but I'm reading from Scripture. Revelation 13, 7. The Antichrist has given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority, it being the Antichrist, was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. Part of what Revelation is communicating to us that in the midst of the seven years of tribulation, especially at the end, evil is winning. Evil is winning. And it's hard as Christians. We're going to talk about whether we're raptured before, mid, or after. I believe that we're there for it. And he's inviting us to be courageous, to live with valor in those moments. And then, at this point, Revelation 19, we're going to read, we're going to start at verse 11 I believe that, yes, God is working, yes, God is at work, but we're crying out, we're struggling, and it seems like maybe evil will win. And for those who don't know their Bibles, they're going to think that the Antichrist has got it all locked down. I was thinking about another movie. This is not going to surprise you at all. (laughs) Avengers Endgame. Do you remember that, that scene where where uh, Thanos is winning, right? He's thrown off Thor, he's thrown off the Iron Man, and and he throws off uh, Captain America. And Captain America, in a courageous way, gets back up. He tightens his... Well, instead of me just tell you about it, let's just watch. We just watch. Just Just a few minutes of it. Yeah, let's do it, Kate. The danger of showing a clip is now we want to watch the rest of the movie, right? Who wants to hear a sermon? No, 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 dial back in. You can watch it later if you want, right? But I imagine, not the the sparkly yellow thing, but to a certain degree, degree, the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, is winning. That sin has become rampant. And then 19, verse 11, happens. This is John, of course, speaking. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. Can you see it? Can you imagine it? Heaven opens, white horse. Jesus with the blazing fire. And his head, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven 
We're following him. So there's going to be many yellow circles. Not really circles, but it's not Jesus alone. The armies of heaven, the the heavenly host, are with him. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. What a picture, an angel standing in the sun. Who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast, which is the Antichrist, And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and on his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now we're going to continue in, in just a moment to read about the millennial kingdom that's coming in. But in this one section... It's pretty amazing. You've got the second coming of Christ that Jesus talked about again and again. You've got the rapture, I believe, and Armageddon, the great war at end of the time. The apostles, the apostle Paul, I'm gonna what I'm gonna try and do for you is to create a picture of what this is. And I'm gonna use a lot of the Apostle Paul's words to inform what's happening, to understand the rapture, uh, Armageddon, and the second coming of Christ, how that looks. And so I want you to take in, and I've actually on, on the bulletin put a few extra scriptures in there that you can read later. We're going to read some of them. But I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul was speaking prophetically oftentimes and is illuminating these events. So I think it's significant to to see what uh, Revelation is talking about and and looking at symbolically and allow the apostles' words to hopefully bring understanding and clarity. It says in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, it says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. He's revealing prophetically what's going to happen to you and I. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. He's talking about the moment when we are given resurrection bodies. That we from our earthly bodies, for those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes back, 
there will be a transformation into resurrection bodies. A picture of this was Jesus when he was resurrected and he appears to the disciples, right? And he makes some fish and he eats and, and, he, and they could touch his side, right? That was Jesus' resurrection body. He's interacting with people who haven't gone through the resurrection yet. Paul is saying, I'm telling you a mystery. And there's a moment in history for those Christians that are alive that we will meet Christ in the air and be transformed. He says, but we will be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of a light, at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now part of the significance of that is oftentimes when the second coming of Christ is talked about, there's a trumpet, there's a, a, a blare, a, an announcement of the arrival of Christ. Even back in the Old Testament for the Jubilee, when a Jubilee was meant to happen, a trumpet was blasted. A, a trumpet was announcing victory and change and a moment to pay attention to. Are there trumpets in the book of Revelation? Absolutely. There's seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. And remember that um, it was said that um, the trumpet, the final trumpet, the last trumpet, when we read of the last trumpet, um, there's no more trumpets in Revelation. In fact, listen to Revelation 11:15 again, giving a picture. I believe that the trumpets of judgment will be played all the way through the seven-year uh, tribulation. And on the seventh trumpet, it says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. We're giving a picture of that same trumpet that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians in Revelation is the announcement of the second coming of Christ. Right in the middle of the book of Revelation, chapter 11, we're given this idea of the seventh trumpet and then the kingdom of, God, uh, kingdom of heaven becomes the kingdom of the world. We are transformed we are, I believe at that moment, raptured. Now, let me share a few words. I've left the discussion of when the rapture happens a little bit open for us to, to look at. Rapture is this moment. Rapture is, a, the Greek word is haparzo, which means to be caught up. I'll read the scripture in just a second. Or the, the Latin word, which the church operated in Latin, was Rapturo, that's where we get the word rapture, okay? And there's great discussion of when this happens. Does it happen before the seven years of tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the tribulation? Does it end post or at the end of tribulation? And we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and I realize that for many of us, we're influenced by the Left Behind series, which is a, a good series to read and reflect on, and they have a pre-tribulation rapture. And many of us, we're, we're raised with that perspective, 
But I'm arguing that I don't think Scripture teaches that. I don't see that anywhere in Paul's writings, in Jesus' words, in, in the book of Revelation, anywhere. If you're using good, healthy principles of interpretation, I would say it's just not there. Do I believe in rapture? Yes. I believe that at the second coming of Christ, we will meet him in the sky. Let me read Paul's words to you where the idea of rapture comes from. Um, it's in 1 Thessalonians, and I lost it in my notes here. Well, let me, let me do this. Let me read the words of Jesus. I think this is interesting here. He says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. There's the trumpet again. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven's to another. Now did you notice, again there's a trumpet, and there's the gathering of the elect. Now let me read Paul, 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, which is represented in, in uh, chapter 19, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Boy, scripture likes trumpets, doesn't it? It's a lot of trumpets. Let's pay attention to that. With the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, are left, will be caught up. There's the Greek word, haparzo. Will be caught up, the Latin, rapturo will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. A lot of people don't realize that in the Left Behind series, you have people meeting Christ in, in the air, but it's a secret coming of Jesus. I would say, like, is he going to be like, angels, stop doing the trumpets. Shh. Shh. No, no, no. And then we go back to heaven. That's actually what the pre-tribulation is arguing. And I would say that's wrong. In fact, everybody, we're not going to see, let's say Gunnar and Julia all of a sudden disappeared. Then I'd be like, okay, I need to rethink my theology of the revelation. Right? If they were just gone. But they're saying, no, no, no. We're not going to be, I wonder what happened to Gunnar and Julia. Man, I need to change my life. No. We're going to hear a trumpet. We're going to hear the voice of the archangel. Christ is going to come with all to see. In fact, as we're trying to stand courageously as Christians, we're going to be crying out, Christ, come. And then we're going to hear that trumpet and go, yes. We are not by ourselves. Yes, the promise is here. And then I believe, as Paul says, we will meet him in the skies. Hopefully we'll all join Gunnar and Julia. 
going and meeting Christ in the sky, and then where do we go? We're with the Lord forever. We never leave his side. Where, where do we go? According to the scriptures. Did you catch it? Revelation 19? Where do we go? We go to battle. The army of God. I mean, ultimately, we're going to Mount Zion and Jerusalem. But we're going to the battle. We're meeting the enemy in that. That's where the, the, the army, that's the armies of heaven that we read about. We're, we're meeting him there. All right, let's, let's talk about, again, that's rapture. So technically, if you're using labels, I am post-tribulation. I would love to be pre-trib. I would love for us not to experience. But I think it's going to be a great moment in the church. And we're going to live out our, life, our, our faith with bravery and courage. It's going to be a shining moment. And I don't want us to miss that. So we're, we're post-tribulation, but pre-millennial. In which you'll understand that in a moment. But let's talk a little bit about this battle, this war, Armageddon. The armies of heaven are joining with Christ in the return. Um, I mentioned the bowls. Now the trumpet, I believe, is the moment when we return. And the bowls are going to be unfolding. And we write, read about Armageddon. We read that back in Revelation 16, 16. Remember, there's a stacking of the seven years of tribulation. And it read, it reads, then they, trinity of evil, the Antichrist, false prophet, Satan, gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's Revelation 16, 16 and 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. All right, let's unpack that for just a moment. Armageddon is a place, it's a, a literal place. The translation means Mount Megiddo, M-E-G-I-D-D-O. You can actually Google it and you can find it a place. In ancient Hebrew, Megiddo was a plain, a large area that they did many battles. I believe Revelation is pointing to a specific location of that battle, Mount Megiddo. All right, who is the opposition army? Would you flip back in your Bibles to chapter 17? We, we skipped this last week, but if you look at verse 12, there's an image of the beast that the prostitute is riding, and it says in verse 12, then ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour... So in other words, a very short time, they're going to rule and reign, will receive authority as kings along with the beast, the Antichrist. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast, to the Antichrist, who's, he's pulling all the strings. Okay? They will wage war against the lamb. Well, he's in heaven, right? So 
can't be, even though this is in Revelation 17, to understand that talking about the end where Christ returns, brings the, the uh, heavenly army, meets them on Mount Megiddo at Armageddon. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Did you hear that? Who's with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Yes, the called, the chosen, chosen, the faithful uh, followers. They're talking about this moment where we meet, where the kings of the earth, those systems, those powers have been gathered. The godless society has been gathered. Really, I would say that they've probably been demonized in that moment. The military, the Antichrist is leading the military. They're like, we're going to have to face this lamb. We're going to do it, and there's ten, at least ten nations. Some people think that's just symbolic for all the nations in the world, but it could be ten leaders. We meet them at the place of Armageddon, and honestly, I don't think it's going to be much of a battle. Uh, even though they've got us Thanos, what the Avengers didn't have, they didn't have Jesus, Right? And I think we are going to receive our resurrection bodies, but maybe we're there for cleanup. I don't know. But the angels, the heavenly host, are there. They're going to be opposed. In fact, I believe the bowls of judgment that are poured out are specifically on the Antichrist, the false prophet, the gathered armies. And by the time they're ready to fight, all the fight is going to be out of them. And they're going to be defeated. All right? Now, um, now let me read Paul's words when he's, because I want you to understand actually what's happening, what Christ Jesus is doing in this moment. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he, Jesus, comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, uh, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So I would argue what is happening if you bring together Paul's words and Jesus' words in the book of Revelation that Jesus, with the heavenly host, all the saints that have gone, gone before us, the angels come, those who are still alive will meet him in the air. Uh, I don't know why I'm picking on Gunnar and Julia, but Gunnar and Julia will meet him in the air and hopefully all of us will be transformed, and then we will go and meet the enemy on the field. The bowls will be poured out, and he will be conquered. And did you notice what Jesus is doing? He's defeating all the enemies of God. 
He's overturning the systems of evil in this world. And there's a day when he gives the kingdom, which is the removal of all sin, he gives it to the Father. But not at this moment. This is a crucial moment in the history. Right? Now, he got what, what is happening right now. We're going to get to the uh, millennial, but let me ask this by way of application. What Jesus is doing there in the future, which we see through the book of Revelation, with all the justices and all the cruelty, cruelty and all the malice in the world, he is upsetting, he's working against, he's bringing the, the righteousness of the kingdom, the goodness of the kingdom, the justice of the kingdom to bear on the earth. He's doing that today from heaven through us. Or at least he's wanting to. That he is wanting to bring all the righteousness, goodness, and justice of the kingdom today in our lives, in our community, in our world. That that is the focus of the church. That the church is meant to be on mission. That we're joining him. And you can use military and battle language, but sometimes the church has got caught up in that. But we're meant to be forces of good in this world. We're, we're meant to stand against the evil in this world. We're meant to say, hey, that's not right. The kingdom of God is justice, is mercy, is love, is graciousness. So we're meant today to be living out, even though it's in part, what we're reading about will happen in the future. When Jesus was talking to the religious leaders, um, the Pharisees and so forth, and as most of you know, he was very critical of the religious leaders of his time. And essentially he was saying, your emphasis is in the wrong place. You're making the big deal little and the little deals big. Stop it. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices and mint and dill and cumin. They're tithing very religiously. Very legalistically. They're, they're living in this legalistic way. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. What are the more important matters of the law? Well, if we keep reading. Justice. Mercy. Faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, the tithing, without neglecting the former or uh, uh, practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the tithing. He's, he's saying this is what the gospel life is. This is who God is. This is who you're meant to be today and right now in the moment we're not twiddling our thumbs waiting for Jesus to appear in the sky. We're meant to be peoples of justice, of mercy, and faithfulness. Let me just touch on this real quick because we have to get to next chapter. So 
thinking about how we live justice in the world, I would say I am not uh, much of one that wants endless wars and, and uh, the propagation, especially not nation building. And yet when I saw the, the pictures of what was happening in Ukraine, let me read to you again the verse, verse we started with. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True with justice. He judges and wages war. And I thought, is this a moment of justice that we are called to step in? Where's the moments that we're trying to Stand between the bully and the bullied. Where's the moments when we're called to assist a person being persecuted or experiencing racism? We're called to be a people of mercy. I was thinking of a, a couple many, many years ago, their grandchild, they lost their grandchild. A, a great sin was perpetrated against them. And, and the law... He went to jail, still in jail, very long time, and yet they're wrestling with the balance of justice and mercy, the forgiveness of the perpetrator. We prayed together, encouraged him that though Jesus is a God of justice and he judges sin and there's consequences to sin, he calls us to be a people of mercy especially when it's difficult, especially when it calls us to sacrifice. And faithfulness, being a people of justice and mercy, he's called us to live courageously with valor into those moments of justice and mercy, even when it hurts. I'm going to leave you guys with those three words, and I want you to pray and Think through, how do I live as a person of justice, mercy, and faithfulness in this world? Let's turn the page. I'm going to read chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan, who's a fallen angel. Did you know that there is an angel in the universe that is stronger than Satan. Amen. This angel has a great chain and he grabs the dragon by the neck. I'm kind of putting my own language in there, but that's how I imagine it. And what does he do? He wraps him up. He binds him. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand year, years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Do you know who he's getting a picture of? I would argue you and me, the saints that are with him, that have experienced 
the resurrection body. In fact, Paul says to us, don't you know that you will judge even angels as Christians? And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on the foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead, mostly non-Christians, but we'll talk more about this next week, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Okay, just a, a few words about the, the millennium. Again, it's Latin. Millennium is Latin for a thousand years. And of course, this is a a focus of, of a lot of debate, and really it comes down to how literal do you take this passage. I used to be of a, a different understanding. I used to believe what was called amillennial, or, or perhaps a better title is realized millennial, that the, the thousand years was symbolic for how we're living today, that we're in the, the, the millennial reign right now. But I've changed, and I believe that the millennial is meant to be in our future. Real quickly, a few reasons for the change. One is just the principle of interpretation that we've been following, trying to take the plainest meaning of the text and, and recognizing that, yes, Revelation is using symbolic language, but it's symbolic of actual things. So, for example, I don't know if it's a literal thousand-year reign. I, I, I don't mind that. 144,000, I don't think, was a literal. It was a symbolic number, but it, may, it meant a lot. It meant all the saints for all time in the book of Revelation. So I believe this thousand-year reign is representing a time between today and eternity to come. That it's representing a real age and time. Also, it doesn't feel like we are reigning with Christ in the degree that this passage represents. Yes, we're reigning with Christ, but not in the sense of how this passage is describing, in my opinion. That's related to the third point. Evil seems to be really present that according to the other New Testament writers, that Satan is still on the prowl. He's still the kingdom of the air. He's still at work. He's not been bound, that I believe this passage is talking about. And finally, what was most convincing to me is there's other passages of Scripture that seem to represent a time that does not fit our present age, nor does it fit eternity. So I, I wrote some of these down in your bulletin. Parts of Psalm 72, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14. There, there's these moments where it seems like the, when it's talking about an age to come, 
and eternity to come. It doesn't quite fit eternity where there's no marriage and there's no kids, uh, new kids, and there's no death. There's no birth and no death. Listen to, this is a section from Isaiah 65 that was talking about eternity, using the language of a new heavens and a new earth, but it says, never again will there be in it this eternity, this place of the Garden of Eden restored, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. No longer will they build houses, and others live in them, or plant, and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. They'll live a long life, but then die. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. You see, this is happening where there is a new heavens and a new earth where there's no marriage or, or no uh, birth, new births, no dying, and yet it's talking about a time that's in between those. Here's the picture that Jesus conquers those aligned with the Antichrist, and then he establishes his kingdom on earth, the millennial reign, and all the heavenly host, you and I that were with him, will participate in the kingdom of God being openly manifest worldwide. That from Jerusalem where Jesus reigns, will, will, there'll be another triumphal entry after the uh, uh, army of uh, Armageddon. I'm going to go over this again next week, so don't worry if you don't get it all. Okay? going to do triumphal entry, and then we're going to reign with Christ, and we're going to see the effects of the kingdom of God on politics, on agriculture, on economics, on education, on family, on media, arts, the environment. We're going to see that. All right. Since we're almost out of time, let me lead you, leave you with this parable. So one of the end times parables is the invitation to be a good steward. And Jesus, he's talking about the end times, and he says this, who then is the faithful and wise servant? In other words, he's saying, how then should you live today in light of the future? whom the master has put in charge of the servant in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to live today, to steward well, to love well, to rule well. All of those things today in light of this moment that we're reading about in Revelation 19 and 20, that Jesus is returning and we are going to give an account of our lives. He's looking for the wise and faithful servants. He's saying, what I've given you, in another parable, he's saying, a good and faithful servant, you've done well, now I'm going to give you charge of ten cities. I think he was talking about the thousand-year reign. He's saying, I'm looking for, I'm coming back, and I'm looking for people who are living right, who are living today in the way. With small things, you are faithful. In your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, 
in how you do your job, in how you pay your taxes, in how you dialogue, especially with those in opposition, your social media. I'm looking for the people that are taking all the gifts I've given them, all the skills, all the abilities, all the resources, all the time. And I'm looking to come and bless those people with what I've given in these really small things. Now let them flourish for a thousand years as they reign with me. Let's pray.